Welcome to the Lean Blog Podcast. Visit our website at www.leanblog.org. Now, here's your host, Mark Graben. Hi, this is Mark Graben. Welcome to episode 256 of the podcast. It is July 19th, 2016. I'm really excited to have Steve Barra as my guest uh, for this episode. I read about him when he was featured prominently in parts of the 1994 Pulitzer Prize winning book, Comeback, The Fall and Rise of the American Automobile Industry. I'd read the first half of the book uh, before the interview. That's what prompted me to reach out to him uh, when we did this in late June. And I just finished the book during my flight back home uh, for my recent trip to China. Now, this book, Comeback, is, as the title might suggest, about the struggles of the Detroit automakers in the 1980s and early 90s and all of the egos and, and drama that were involved. Now, I recently just learned about the book after a recent discussion about former GM CEO Roger Smith's then obsession with robotics and factory automation. I was Googling the $80 billion number, which is the amount Smith and GM spent on ill-fated automation attempts, and it led me to this outstanding book. Now, Steve Barrow was featured in the book because he was one of the first 16 GM managers and leaders to be sent to go work with and learn from Toyota at the famed Numi Joint Venture Factory in California. Steve was also part of uh, the excellent episode of This American Life, the public radio show that looked back at the lessons from Numi. Now, if you're not familiar with the Numi story, you might want to listen to that first, actually. You can find a link to that at leanblog.org slash 256. Now, Steve learned some amazing lessons from Toyota, but ended up leaving GM right at the end of his two-year Numi stint, as he was very concerned he wouldn't be effective back within the traditional GM culture. And you'll hear about that in uh, part two of uh, our discussion. It'll be coming uh, in an upcoming episode. So since then, Steve has worked as a consultant and a leader in many industries, including some recent time spent working for large retailers working to create lean supply chains. So again, we had a very long, um, really interesting, I, I loved the conversation. Um, I'll be releasing two parts to this discussion of about 35 minutes each in separate episodes. I'm also sharing a transcript for the episode uh, at the end of the post, again, at leanblog.org slash 256. I hope you enjoy his reflections and the conversation as much as I did. Steve, hi, thanks so much for being a guest with us on the podcast. Mark, I appreciate the opportunity to once again revisit uh, a success story that has been now over 30 years uh, since Numi uh, began. And uh, to talk about it once again is something that I, I look forward to. Yeah, so maybe, you know, and there's, I'm sure, a longer background to help introduce yourself. Uh, but how did you get to be one of what they called the, uh, the, the, the 16 Numi commandos? At, at the time that uh, I was being considered, I was in the GM building in their corporate production control group. And this was back in, in, in and, I, and I went there in 1979. And then in 1982, uh, is, in 83, is when Toyota had finalized the agreement with General Motors. And they had profiled all the individuals as far as their functional background, what they were looking for in terms of the type of people to help them uh, start up the joint venture. Uh, they were looking for production control types, uh, manufacturing quality, finance, marketing. Um, and so I was asked if I wanted to consider be considered for that, and I did. 
uh, it wound up being an, an invitation to fly to California to interview with the gentleman who ultimately became my uh, manager, uh, a gentleman by the name of Mr. Uchikawa, and I flew out to California, and uh, I'm not quite sure how it all came about, but I didn't last longer than 30 minutes in my interview with him, and he had made his decision. Hmm. So whatever questions he asked and whatever responses I gave seemed to uh, go well, but it wasn't until I returned back to Detroit that I was advised that I had been selected to participate as one of the 16 members to start up the joint venture. Now, in you know, in the books and you know, articles um, about the group of you, you're you're labeled as you know, high potential managers. Um, how, I mean, how competitive was it to get into that group? Was it semi-competitive? Were there really lots of people dying for the opportunity? This was all very new and uncertain, right? Yeah, what we didn't know is how many were in the queue for, in the selection process. Uh, I had I was one of the only ones that came out of the GM building uh, in the production control group, and so I think that somewhere in the the corporate structure, they each department head had identified their, uh, for lack of a better descriptive, uh, high potential individuals to be successful in joining Toyota. And ultimately, that decision would rest with Toyota, but they felt that based upon my background in, in multiple areas of the corporation, uh, I would have an opportunity to succeed if selected. And, and that term knew me commandos, that was, that was something, wasn't it the Wall Street Journal that later sort of used that descriptor? It wasn't how you were describing yourselves at the time, right? That's correct. Uh, to Paul Ingracia and uh, Joel White, who I were, uh, I believe they won the Pulitzer Prize for uh, uh, writing that book. Uh, and they were the ones who wrote the, and, and coined the phrase, knew me commandos. Yeah, and, 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 and that book, Comeback, uh, which you know, I recommend, that, that's how you know, I was reading uh, about Steve, just as a, a comment to the listeners here. Um, you know, who am I to uh, question Pulitzer Prize winning authors. It seemed like Numi Ninjas might have had a better <laughs> better ring to it, uh, at least some alliteration, but maybe they thought that sounded too Japanese. Yeah, and, it, and I think that they did a great job of describing the, the storyline with everyone. On uh, and When you think back about what just that word commando, what were we, and that really wasn't our role when we were out there. I, I almost feel like that, that term commando was supposed to be something once we were repatriated back into the corporation to be able to help uh, drive change within General Motors. Um, and we'll, we'll come back to, uh, to how that played out here in a little bit. But so thinking about, you know, your, your early education um, in, in Japan with Toyota, with Numi, I mean, what, what were some of the early lessons that you learned about that different style of leadership compared to what you were used to at General Motors? The one thing that in GM, all of the, uh, I would say the 16 of us, we were v um, very deep in our understanding of our own uh, areas of expertise, whether it was production control or finance or marketing. Uh, everyone had had an extensive background in that. But the thing that I found immediately that when we went out there with the, the team who was going to be training us, uh, they not, not only were deep in every aspect of their business, 
they were they were very broad. They were broad-based knowledge of everything. So they could speak to the engineering. They could speak to customer service. They could speak to the financial aspects of the business. And it, it was something that was almost intimidating because we were weren't raised that way in GM. You were good at what you did. That's what your your performance uh, was based upon. And we just found that uh, we needed to broaden our own spectrum of understanding of the car business uh, from one end of the business unit to the other. The the other thing that we think I think it was really critically important was uh, the Toyota team was ex- involved to an, an extraordinary uh, depth of time where it wasn't where they were just show up and leave. It was they were their presence was everywhere in each one of our response areas of responsibility, whether it was in the plant, whether it was in the office, whether it was in the meetings. Um, it, it, they were there to ensure that we were steering the ship in the right direction. Um, you know, a lot of times in in, in our world that we we find that uh, we we think we know a lot. And sometimes that uh, our ego can get in the way of good judgment. And I think that was the one thing, and, I, and I've used the word before, uh, humility is something each one of us learn at different points of our life. I think humility is something that everyone learned very quickly out there because they realized that we didn't have all the answers. We, do, we weren't contemporary thinkers in terms of manufacturing and the car business, but they, they showed us over the course of the training that um, – what we were, where the gaps were in what we understood as far as the best practices, and that was the Toyota production system. Yeah, just um, to delve into humility a little bit, you know, Toyota leaders today um, talk about the idea of leading with humility. Uh, there, there's a, a more recent book called Toyota by Toyota that was written by a number of Americans who worked at the Toyota Georgetown plant in Kentucky, which of course opened a few years after. Uh, the Numi experience uh, experiment started. And, and the first chapter of that book really focuses on uh, leading with humility. And so my, my follow-up question for you, though, is I've talked about this with people. I've always wondered, is humility somehow an ingrained trait where people have a certain level of humility? Or you said it can be learned. Can you maybe elaborate on that a little bit? I, th- I think it, 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 humility comes, it comes back from a reflection. You almost do a comparative against your peers and those around you. Uh, you know, I've always looked at, uh, how do I build my own portfolio? And I look at those that have strengths and attributes in the way they conduct themselves, the way they run their business, the way they speak, the way they communicate. And I look at that and I, I take those attributes that they have that I feel will strengthen me. And, and in some cases, maybe they have those tra- uh, characteristics that, that I, I didn't feel were good for me. But what it amounted to is when I looked at my own portfolio after working with Toyota for the length of time that I was there, I realized that I was really short from the standpoint of a broad-based knowledge and understanding of how to uh, not only lead people, but to understand my business to where uh, I was trying to establish a paragon, a paragon within myself, that model of excellence by which... I had to abide by and was hopefully try to emulate the, the performance of others around me. Well, and you, you talked about, you know, it's not like, you know, you know, this broad 
database systems knowledge of uh, you know functions and breaking down silos. Uh, how did that reflect in terms of how things were measured at NUMI, how teams, uh, individuals, departments uh, were measured and evaluated? You know, that was, one of the first things that we were exposed to was that uh, when we were at full strength and we had, uh, let, we'll just round it to be like 2,100 uh, uh, member, team members and members of the management team, that every day the only number that we were exposed to was how many cars were we supposed to build yesterday and how many did we build? And, it, and that's exactly what, what I, it was contrary to what I had been uh, experiencing in my previous Intermores career because it was more of a, a deep dive. In other words, it, it, individual performances. How well did I score? How well did my department score? As opposed to did we do the things as a, an organization and as a team to where it was a positive contribution to achieve the business objectives and strategic direction of where we were going. And that's, the, to me, the one thing that uh, we all had to come to grips with. It was we all win and we all fail. Yes, there are, are measurement systems that would probably uh, evaluate the individual, but it was more in terms of not so much a numeric, but of a qualitative input into what we did to support the objectives of the business. Yeah. Now, in you know, breaking down the silos, I'm I'm curious. You know, you talk about the uh, the production volume number, which is of course important. But you know, in earlier parts of the book, uh, come back and you know, I remember from my time at GM, it was really just you know, quantity, quantity, move the metal, make the numbers, their stories. In the book, come back about how one silo in GM really, you know, didn't want to help, um, you know, the car division and, um, you know, but, you know, there were, there were elements of, uh, you know, in those different stories of putting quantity before quality. Um, what was the approach to, to finding the, the right balance in those metrics at NUMI? Or did Toyota kind of assume um, you had to build the quantity, but they had to be built right the first time? Was that just so ingrained? And that's an excellent point, because it, uh, I recall my days when I was in the GM building, and when we would get on the elevator and going up to the 14th floor for a meeting with our key execs, and on the wall of the elevator was how many cars and trucks were built the day before. And whatever that number was, it was, uh, uh, you know, and I, I, and I can't speak to whether that's 35,000 or 40,000, whatever that number was, mm -hmm. that's all that we were able to discern by reading that number is what, this is what we built that day. Now, as history has shown it for years, that of whatever production we did back then, we never were so, so concerned about the fact that maybe five or 6,000 of those cars were still in the yard that required repair. And that's what was happening. Mm. When we went to Toyota, they never built the yard to be able to handle poor quality vehicles. It was just a small area by which when the car came off the line, it was fixed at that moment in time. So instead of thousands of cars that needed repair, you might have had 10 or 15 cars that maybe had a small de defect in them that needed to be repaired. So the mentality was that you build a perfect car every time, you keep your costs down, you keep your customers happy, and the work ethic amongst your 
your workforce is something that, that, to be proud of. Yeah. What were the perceptions, I think, you know, early on is the NUMI plant was, was you know, rehiring employees, UAW employees, um, working on, you know, training people in a new uh, approach to quality and, and, and management. And as that was ramping up, I mean, how, how was that perceived back in Detroit? Because, you know, in, in the book, Come Back, it sort of, you know, paints a picture that, that Roger Smith, the CEO at the time, had this sort of, you know, this, uh, this, this competitive uh, coup that, you know, he got this deal with Toyota. But at the same time, Roger Smith and GM were putting, it seemed like, all of their bets on automation and, you know, kind of envisioning a different path than, uh, you know, Toyota was going down. So, uh, what, I mean, what were some of the comparisons or, or how this was perceived, do you think, um, in terms of, you know, was, was Detroit learning from Toyota or were they just kind of letting that happen? I think at the onset, and once, once we started up in production, many of the GM execs made visits out to Newming. And as they would walk through the facility, they would see things that the, they would never have ex observed or experienced in their own operations back home. And that was that the, the team members were basically running the operation. And the team members were empowered to shut the line down at any time if a problem developed. The team members were uh, provisioned to uh, resolve any internal issues. If, if quality problems developed, it was up to them to resolve that amongst themselves. The only time that you find that members of the management team would be called in would, was is, is if, if they hit a, a roadblock. Now, the GM folks were also dealing with, with a, a, I think, some very difficult uh, barriers back in their home uh, operations because of the, the agreements we had with the UAW at the time. You know, they, there's such a large proliferation of classifications, the fact that you can't work out of your classification, the rules on overtime. Uh, Toyota made sure that that was not going to be an impediment to what we had going forward. And I think every executive that visited out there saw the hygiene of the plant. They saw a very effective production system. They didn't see a lot of automation other than that, which was typical 30 years ago in, in most of the plants. Yes, you had an automated body shop. Yes, you had automated movement of, of uh, the vehicles and what have you, but not to where you are today. And Roger Smith was, he, he was comfortable in the direction that he was heading because, again, he was a financial man. In his bottom line, he was making a lot of money for the corporation. The problem is that there were ancillary-type problems that were covered under the, the profitability of the corporation, whereby, you know, you don't see problems with um, warranty when you're making that kind of money. It's just buried within, where Toyota felt like that's just the way to run a business. Is we don't want to have high warranty costs within our organization, because number one, that'll erode customer satisfaction. And, and that's a longer-term impact than looking at just the quarterly numbers, right? That's correct. So when we first got to California, we were just doing working extraordinary amounts of hours to put the whole organization <clears throat> together. While we were doing that, Toyota was already in the conference room planning Georgetown, Kentucky. Hmm. And they were already a few years ahead of us. And that's another part that just impressed all of us is to think 
they had already already had a success story that they know they were going to have when that baby was born uh, in Numi, and now they were just getting ready to. All right, what's what's the next challenge that we're going to have? And that was going to be Georgetown, and it, it's proved out that their planning, their ability to plan to see the future and create that flexibility in the marketplace is something that today still I I'm just uh, uh, so impressed by. Yeah, and we're talking about planning, and we'll, we'll come back to um, what the what the GM plan had been, if there was one. But um, I'm curious what other difference you saw. You describe Roger Smith as a finance man, and you know there's a long history of GM CEOs going through you know uh, through Rick Wagner and and all the way up through the GM bankruptcy. You know, kind of always punching their ticket in the, you know the New York finance office and. You know, I mean, how, how would you describe the, the Toyota senior leaders you dealt with? Were they more, would you say, factory people, operations people? The All the way through the president, which happened to be Mr. Toyota, who was out there, had an office out there, that I could approach him in any hallway and ask him a question. And to this day, I still remember the day that I had... I had to get a signature for a, a million-dollar investment for what I was doing. And the way that Toyota had it was, uh, as long as I had done uh, the, the pre-screening with all the other executives before I got to him, it was automatic for him to sign the document for my million dollars. So we, And that's not the way it was in GM. <laughs> GM had such a... A, a, a difficult time of when you talk about processing of paperwork and getting approvals, the, the departmentalization that required in, input into it just took forever and ever. We did it all within that building, and we were empowered to get signatures and approval out of everybody before we finally got the, the last approval, which happened to be Mr. Taylor at that time. So it, it, it gave us some uh, a lot we had never been exposed to before. And I'm curious, you know, I mean, how GM viewed or, you know, coming into the NUMI experiment, uh, you know, there's talk of, you know, Roger Smith and people at GM thought there was, you know, some sort of, you know, magic or secret about how Toyota was successful. Um, how, how much were they really understanding the impact of the culture, the philosophy of the Toyota production system, the management system, or was that just not on their radar because they were just looking at the cost of these these small cars that were being built. Yeah, yeah, and I think that's a, a very good question that I don't believe at that time that anyone in the, orga in the, in the organization understood that word culture. Hmm. In other words, what does that really mean? Because the culture, as a comparative to General Motors, was such as you... You know, you, you hit the clock in the morning, you walk out at the end of the day, and whatever happened, happened, and let's just count the numbers uh, every every 24 hours. Where with Toyota, it was more of, uh, how, how do you feel? Can you empathize with what's going on in this business? If you're walking through the facility, do you see, do you see a problem that might be exist in the paint shop? Do you see a problem in the stamping operations? Do you see a problem in the body shop? That, that's, that was the culture they bred, is you have to have this acute understanding of everything that's going on so you put it together and connect the dots to say, gee, could there be some problem that might develop because of what the observation was? 
GM wasn't like that. Everybody was an independent business person within the, the, the corporate hierarchy and especially within the plants. You just did what your job was, and uh, you were good at it, but unfortunately you never knew if the person next door to you, uh, how good they were. Hmm. And, and there was a different approach. We mentioned um, observation. There was sort of a different way that observation was done at a factory level, right? Yeah, they, we were when we first went out there, and it's, it's just ironic that uh, most of us were worked in facilities that required us to be in electric carts or bikes and what have you, where when we first got out there, there were still some of the uh, carts that were left over from the old days, and when we would walk out to the plant and we'd, we'd try to get some of our managers to say, let's get in this cart and we'll take a tour around, uh, it was just uh, so emphatic on their part to say, we, we won't be getting in a cart, we won't be getting on a bike, because the, the important thing for you when you walk through a facility is to be able to see and understand what's going on. And if you're driving by something, you're not going to be able to acknowledge a problem. So, excuse me, you want to be able to see uh, every aspect of the business and its impact upon the success story for the day. Yeah. Now, do you have any favorite stories uh, about anything that was surprising about the Numi way or the Toyota approach? Well, the one thing that is we talked a little bit about training. Uh, we spent hours and hours and weeks and weeks behind closed doors in training. And not only in Japan, but also in, in Fremont at, at the Numi plant. But the one thing that <coughs> came out was, Toyota was very good. And Mr. Uchikawa, who was our boss, uh, he had this ability to read body language and facial expressions. And when they were teaching, and he was doing a lot of the teaching himself, uh, how we were going to run the business going forward, he could see that many times we'd have a furrowed brow hmm. or we'd look like we'd have a, 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 a tightness to our body as we're sitting there. And he would stop the training, and all he would say is, I can tell that you do not understand, you do not embrace the, some of these concepts. I want you to leave here. I want you to go think about it, and we'll reconvene tomorrow. Hmm. No one had ever ever given us a training block like that, but it proved to be they were right. Because, you know, it's like anytime you try to, you know, change is not something that comes easy, especially with the Americans. And we were, you know, most of us had had 15, 20 years in the corporation, so we were creatures of habit. But to, be, to accept the change wound up being a very difficult process for all of us. But they, uh, we, would, we would come back the next day, we would have a refreshed look at it and have a, an open our mind. You know, if you've ever read anything about Zen, mm -hmm. Zen tells a great story about uh, a business executive who who uh, went to a Zen uh, master and said he he had some challenges and he needed some advice on how to handle some of his business challenges and. The Zen master asked him if he wanted a cup of coffee, and he said, sure. And he poured him a cup of coffee, and then as the cup filled, it kept flowing over and over, and the business executive said, why, why are you overfilling the cup? 
And he said, because you've come here and your mind is like that cup. It is already full. And until such time as we can change and drain some of that out and replace some of it, we'll never be able to move forward with your new uh, realm of understanding. Yeah. Now, and when they ended the class early, they, they weren't, it wasn't in the, in the, uh, the tone of scolding you or being punitive. Was it, was it more a matter of just being patient and letting you kind of pause and reflect and absorb? Or, Well, I would say that they also could express some frustration with us. <laughs> Uh, and I, you know, that uh, it, it wasn't it wasn't uh, w- only one time, but we would walk out of that room, and he and they would take their knuckle, the single knuckle, and just tap it on our top of our head and say, <laughs> "Have to use this." And, <laughs> and so uh, we were getting the message very quickly. Now, there, I mean, there's a really interesting, you know, I think, you know, history of what happened where you know Numi was not, as they say, a greenfield plant. It had been. Previously, the GM Fremont plant, it was, uh, you know, it had been shut down. It was, it was a failed um, factory. The, um, the, the, the This American Life um, uh, episode about Numi kind of does a good job of, of documenting that story. And, you know, there, there's some discussion in, in that program in, in which you were a part where, this, so, you know, uh, maybe it was easier to change the culture with Numi because the plant, had been dead and brought back to life compared to trying to take lean or, you know, TPS to other factories where, you know, they, they didn't have that experience. I mean, how, how much of that do you think was a factor at Numi considering it was a lot of, you know, something like 85% of the same employees getting hired back. How, how much of that was a factor? And is, is that a, a part that's not necessarily repeatable when you try to bring this to other organizations, sites, industries? I think the history of Fremont had a lot to do with the um, the changing of the 85% that we brought back, the way they thought about the business. Because the training that had taken place, and we were uh, required to train everyone for two or three weeks at a time, before they became uh, engaged in the workforce. And the one thing that they were acutely aware of was the fact that their old work habits, whether it was the drugs, the alcohol, the poor quality, what have you, had caused the demise of the Fremont facility. And the one thing that Toyota had instilled upon us, and we were creating an opportunity for them to have a renaissance in thinking, a renaissance in their career, and a new lease on their life, on which way they can go. Because a lot of those folks who lost their jobs had gone through divorces, they had suicides, there was all kind of problems. And so for those that wanted to come back, they walked in with an open mind, but we took the same amount of time with the workforce, the team members, as Toyota did with us managers to where we needed to learn our lessons before we were turned loose into the the actual environment of making cars. Uh, now, to your point of a, a business that is running today that does not have those kind of problems, I, I've, I'm convinced that the, the workforce, the, the team members today that are in most of these companies, 
are not the ones who are responsible for performance difficulties. Yeah. I've just seen so many now over the years since I left, the companies that uh, they may talk about lean, they may talk about world-class manufacturing, something that's fashionable, but there, isn't, there are very few people who are willing to embrace it from the top down and dedicate the time and the investment into re-educating the workforce in terms of the, the direction that the company needed to go. And, you know, and part of that re-education, even though there, there had been you know, thousands of layoffs, the plant closure, but as the plant uh, was coming back up, becoming new me, uh, you know, there, there was talk of a no layoffs um, approach. Why was that so important uh, with, within NUMI, why do you think that's an important part of, if you will, a lean culture change, lean transformation in, in other settings? Well, the one, the one thing that I think lean does for, or can do for any company, it allows you to be the, the number one competitor in your environment amongst of the rest of you, the, those that you compete with. It puts you out front, lean, because if, if you truly subscribe to it, you it, it is embodied by your workforce, by the management team, and is demonstrated in the way you run the business on a day-to-day basis. You're going to have your cost at a minimum. You're going to have your quality at its highest level. You're going to have your workforce that is going to be dependable and reliable. And I, and I go back to the book that Jack Welch wrote. Control your destiny, or someone else will. Mm-hmm. That 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 I've never lost uh, my desire to quote that. Only because when you think about it, how many companies can subscribe to that in their everyday operations, in the way they communicate with the workforce? I, I don't think here we are, thirty years later, that we're talking about lean and as a way to be competitive. And, and what does that mean to us in terms of what, what was it 30 years ago? It was TPS, the Toyota Production System. And all we've done now is just we've renamed those, all those strengths and all those um, processes that we've used to be successful 30 years ago into a new environment called Lean Now. As one other thing I was curious um, you know, to, to hear about when – the, the plant was coming back online, uh, new approach, new system. Uh, it sounds like in, in the Fremont plant, it's, it's impossible to understate maybe, you know, how much ill will there had been uh, between uh, the employees and management, between the union and management, maybe, you know, what a lack of trust there was. Can, can you talk about, you know, maybe you know, what you remember being done to try to build trust um, and, and maybe, you know, was, was this commitment to no layoffs part of that? Or was it just sort of a separate thing that Toyota believed in at that point? Well, I think that was the, the right carrot to put in place. And again, the no layoff provision was something that, you know, and that had emanated from what had been going on in Japan. And the, the no layoff policy here was, it, it, that wasn't a standalone statement because again, here in our country, we are such a, uh, a victim of what happens in the, the world economy, the local economy. And so our whole philosophy and, and the way we sold the no layoff policy was if we are the, making the, 
the best car that we can of all the, all the other manufacturers. And if we're making money, there won't be any need for layoffs. All we're, we should have, in, we should have a, a new higher environment because you're building an annuity for the individual, for the company, and for the brand. And what, what do you mean by that building an annuity? Is that just trying? Is that a matter of long-term thinking and decisions we make today paying off in the future? I, well, I, I think that we create an annuity for our, that, that goes not only for the brand, but for the individual. And if you have a work ethic that is so strong, and you have all your policies and your procedures and your and your quality and your metrics in order. You can't do anything but go to the bank every day. Also, you can say two, three, four years down the road, we should be just as strong as we are today. But as long as we stay contemporary in our thinking and we change with the times, we should be able to have that annuity that gives everybody the security of a job for life. So again, to wrap up for today, this is just part one of a two-part episode. The second part will be coming within the next couple of weeks. If you'd like to subscribe to the podcast, make sure you get notified about it. You can go to leanpodcast.org or you can go to leanblog.org, sign up for email notifications about all my blog posts, including the podcast. Thanks for listening. This has been the Lean Blog Podcast. For lean news and commentary updated daily, visit www.leanblog.org. If you have any questions or comments about this podcast, email mark at leanpodcast at gmail.com.